Welcome to the live from AC Second Podcast feed. Uh, today's episode is something that's a little bit different, but but really exciting. If you listened to our last podcast where Chris Moore, Chris Gertz, and I uh, sat down and talked about uh, the this Atlantic article about um, about truth and talked about um, kind of shifting views of truth. Um, at the very end, I mentioned that we were doing uh, the Bethel Honors Program was doing a faculty panel for our, the first in our uh, colloquium series uh, for the year uh, with the topic of are there answers? And uh, we actually recorded this panel, and we want to provide that uh, for you today. So um, we're still working on making the audio better, but I think this actually sounds pretty good. Um, so we have three faculty uh, Bethel faculty members. Uh, they'll be introduced at the very beginning of the podcast um, this year. Amy Poppinga and I um, have taken over as co-directors of the Bethel Honors Program, and this colloquium series is really a, a big thing for us. It's a way to sort of highlight Bethel faculty, and especially to highlight Bethel faculty in conversation, which is one of the things that we're doing on this podcast, uh, but this uh, this colloquium was, was really great, so we're excited to share it with you. So again, the topic is, are there answers? Well, first of all, thanks to all of you for um, coming out on this extremely rainy night to join us for the um, Hiatas Honors Program first uh, colloquium in our sort of like inaugural series this year. Um, so we're going to be having four events that all center around the theme of courage. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what, like, why it matters? Yeah, I will say part of why this matters to me, I want to go back to the fall of 1995, the first year of the Honors Program. We had something called Monday Night Forums where um, as, as honor students, they had different events that were bringing in speakers, were bringing in um, speakers from the Bethel faculty to talk about um, different topics. And this was one of the ideas when we uh, kind of rebuilt the program over the last couple of years that we wanted to bring back was really engaging, um, especially different Bethel faculty uh, in questions that we uh, thought were interesting. So we picked for a topic for this year, uh, for the, the whole colloquium series, uh, the topic of courage. Um, because we're picking up on both a convocation and a chapel theme for the year uh, as well. So that's going to be um, a, loosely around what some of these topics that we're going to be talking about. Uh, we have another one coming up in November. I forget the date. Do you remember? No. It's coming it's up in months. November. It's a month that's on its way. Build the anticipation. That's right. Yes, okay. yeah. No, we'll be looking at courage in print. So that will be the theme of the second colloquium. I guess we should introduce ourselves. My name is Amy Poppinga, and I teach in the history department here at Bethel, and I am the co-director of the honors program. A new co-director is about of a month ago, and I'm joined by... I'm Sam Mulberry. I also teach in the history department, um, co-director of the honors program, and I work in the ASCA office here at Bethel. Okay, great. So um, the way that this evening is going to work is going to be structured is that I'm going to introduce each of our esteemed speakers over here to my right, and then we kind of have an opening question for them that we ask them to think about. And so I will introduce them, and then each of them is going to, I think, just casually, comfortably, but yet confidently, speak from um, your <laughs> speak from your um, disciplinary perspective and a little bit probably from life perspective as well. So I'm going to start with on my um, on the right down here we have Dr. Gary Long. So Gary Long grew up in India, Bangladesh, and the Philippines. An educator whose specialization is the Hebrew Bible, ancient Near Eastern studies, and the cognitive science of religion. He has served on the faculties of Asia Pacific Theological Seminary in the Philippines, Jerusalem University College in Mount Zion, Jerusalem in Israel, and Wheaton College. Where's Wheaton? Just kidding. Presently, he is a professor in Biblical and Theological Studies here at Bethel. Professor Long holds a BA in Bible from Central Bible College and an MA in Old Testament from Denver Seminary and a PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations from the University of Chicago. 
His publications include textbooks for biblical Hebrew and biblical Greek, a commentary on the biblical book of Job, and numerous articles. How uplifting. Professor Long lives in Lower Town, St. Paul, with his wife, Catherine. They have a son, Alan, and daughter-in-law, Sierra, and daughter, Sydney. Catherine and Sydney are here with us tonight. And Cat Chloe. Is Chloe here? Okay. All right. Let's welcome Dr. Long. Following Dr. Long, we will have Dr. Stephen Lancaster. Um, Stephen is an associate professor of psychology here at Bethel in his third year at Bethel, correct? Dr. Lancaster conducts research focused on stressful and traumatic events and how people cope with these types of experiences. Specifically, Dr. Lancaster looks at how aspects of finding meaning in life, identity, religious functioning, and trying to make sense of the event may impact the post-event coping process. He holds a BA from Bethel, um, graduating in 2005, and an MA and a PhD from Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. So, welcome, Dr. Lancaster. <laughs> and then, finally, we have Dr. Nathan Gossett, who is currently the department chair and an associate professor of mathematics and computer science. Dr. Gossett coaches Bethel's COMAP math team. I said, how do you pronounce that? And he said, you're the first person to say it out loud. For here, let it forever be known as COMAP math team which competes annually in the International Mathematical Modeling Competition, as well as Bethel's ACM International Collegiate Programming Competition teams. His academic publications include works on information visualization, non-photorealistic rendering, tree modeling, and rendering and outdoor laser scanning applications. Um, his BA is in math from Bethel University, also a BS in computer science from Bethel, and he completed his PhD in computer science at the University of Minnesota. Welcome, Dr. Gossett. <laughs> So the, the uh, question that we prepared you guys for, and this is the only question we prepared you for, is um, when you think about your own discipline, your own research, um, what are the edges of, the, of your discipline where the idea of answers might start to break down? Did you get that memo? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go first. You can guess, please. Hmm. I think in my discipline, physical philosophical studies, I think where the edges will be, I think depends on a few things. What one's take is for the inspiration of the Bible, but also its incarnation, its humanness. Come back to that maybe in the evening. I think it also there plays a role on one's disposition toward how science or knowledge ought, needs to inform scripture. And I think, lastly, um, the extent how much epistemological confidence we have about what we can know, the confidence of what we can know, and how we get around knowing it. I think I want to set up sort of a personal narrative because I think it can come back for a little bit through the evening. A story, a personal narrative, why I'm arriving at that. I was born the third generation of Assemblies of God Pentecostal family. Assemblies of God. My family stories are one of being in Appalachia, West Virginia, southwestern Pennsylvania. The stories of really in, in persecution. My grandfather, my father's side, this is my grandfather was a Roman Catholic and became a Pentecostal in a revival meetings in Cumberland, Maryland. My mom, my grandma, Lutheran, became a Pentecostal. But, but in the 
1910s, 1920s, Pentecostals were damn holy rollers in this part of the right world. Grandfather would build a couple churches only to have, in one instance, the Flintstone Bomber, a guy from Flintstone, Maryland, take dynamite to it. The porch in silent West Virginia, my grandfather hears a car, easily heard, hears a thud on the porch, runs out, and there's a stick of, several sticks of dynamite that have been thrown in the house to blow up these troublemakers. I'm sitting in the middle of central Pennsylvania, in a place that hadn't changed much. It's one of the churches that had been blown up the day before uh, dedication. And my father is the church rebuilt in there that clearing about 200 meters or tree line, 100 meters tree line around. And I see my father going over to a set of rocks. He says, yes, son, I think this is where the deacons and the church would come out with the shotguns to shoot back to sort of keep the people from shooting through the building while we were having service. Are you serious, Dad? Yeah. I grew up my in-group because of that and this idea of being outsiders, mainline, I mean, the moonshiners, the mainline religious folk in that area, and, 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 the, and the Baptists, they didn't like the Holy Rollers. So I sort of grew up with the storyline that, son, we're Pentecostal. They're, they at, at the day Pentecost and Acts happened, and the church kind of went wrong. And thank God, my dad speaking, the Holy Spirit has come back into the country, into the world. Azusa Street revival was in L.A. in the late 1800s, and we're back and got it right. So I grew up in this highly confident, we've got it right. The rest doesn't. And this extreme confidence in Scripture that as I read it, that's the way it happened. I mean, in my churches every Sunday, I could hear people standing up speaking in tongues and being prophet, just like I read in Acts. I went to Central Bible College, no longer there, Springfield, Missouri, Sons of God, missionary, I was going to be a missionary, etc. Long story short, I end up at the University of Chicago. As a Pentecostal Central Bible College BA in Bible and Denver conserved the Baptist Seminary MA in Old Testament. Pretty confident what I knew. And then I saw I'm there, you Chicago brings through some okay people <laughs> as professors, as instructors. And I began to deal with people who didn't have an agenda that was religious or not religious. It was just hear the data about archaeological, these mismatches of what probably what the Bible says happened. We don't have evidence for that. And I don't have an infrastructure around me. And I'm seriously going, oh my. Oh my. <clears throat> Years, a few years from now, or a few years ago, and heavy linguistics, archaeology, etc. And the third talking point, and I'll turn it over, these points and settings, because I think I'll be coming back to them. Uh, probably eight years ago now, I picked up a book, two, two prophets, Lakoff and Johnson, 
influenced my research back in the 80s, cognitive linguistics. They wrote a book called Metaphors We Live By, and it's sort of the beginning of a new field called cognitive linguistics. And my dissertation went down sort of along that line. Another book came out, I forget how long ago, 10 years ago, Lake Coffin Johnson, Philosophy in the Flesh. It literally changed my life. It changed my direction. Up to that point, I'd been writing grammar books and linguistic historical stuff, and philosophy in the flesh was my foray into the physicality of the human mind sitting in a body that is embedded in its physicality and it addressed such things as dualism and mind outside the body. I, I'm reading that, and I have the good fortune to be liked by... I think he's the smartest man I know, Adam Johnson, <laughs> who wanted and wanted, had his own research and drew me into it and cognitive science and addressing these sorts of things. How do you answer those questions? The frailty, the, the perfection of the Bible, supposedly, or its humanity and frailness, frailty within it? How we deal with how much science ought to inform what we do in biblical studies and how we do scripture. And well, that last one. Uh, trying to consider what it is about how we get at what we will believe and the confidence that we can know. Those things, where you answer those things, the edges, way back there, can't even see it to, oh my, I think I'm falling off. <laughs> Your turn. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you have three talking points. I have twenty-seven. So <laughs> buckle in. So uh, I think, like Gary, uh, there's a number of different ways or, or levels I can answer this question at. Um, one that I, I I try not to think about too much. Um, it's pretty clear that our brain is important, right? That's not very interesting. But why and how and how do we go from? Well, we know there's a genetic risk for schizophrenia. If you have a fraternal twin uh, with schizophrenia, you have a 17% chance of schizophrenia. If you have an identical twin with schizophrenia, you have a 50% chance of developing schizophrenia. The, the brain matters. Genes matter. How do we go from genes to hallucinations to delusions, to disorganized behavior? We have no idea, and that's a question that. The brain matters how, why, where, we don't know. We spent billions of dollars on it. The previous head of the NIMH, National Student Mental Health, spent billions of their funding portfolio on trying to figure out genetics and biological basis of mental health, and we're doing no better care than we were doing 10 years ago or 15 years ago. We're just not making the progress we thought we would. They started working on the new diagnostic manual in 2002 and said we're going to base it all in biology. All of our diagnostic manuals, or all of our diagnoses are going to be done with biological tests. We have zero. Not a single diagnosis is maybe exclusively based on a biological test. And so all of this work, all of this money, billions of your money and my money and all of our money being given by the government to people to find out how the brain connects to the mind and what those things even are and what they mean. And we're not making any progress in day-to-day life. I'm a clinical psychologist, so I care about my, my clients. So that's a problem. The other problem that I see, an answer of, of where we don't know, is how do we know in psychology? How do we uh, how do we declare something as truth or certain? 
we take, now again, so I'm a clinician, I diagnose people. We have a diagnostic manual, mostly made by people who live, and our clients who live in the United States, a little bit in Canada, a little bit in Western Europe, and we apply it to the whole world. And we take a small part of the world and assume everyone else is like that. And really, we can take any other part of the world, and that'd be a better starting point than what we started with. And yet, if you have a client who came from Somalia three weeks ago and goes into HCMC, if they're going to be diagnosed, they're going to be diagnosed with a manual based on zero people who live in Somalia, who have been clients who grew up in Somalia. And so what are the problems there, and how do we even know, should we use this manual, should we use these techniques to help people with people, should we just, can we just generalize it? That's the second one. I guess I do have three points too. There we go. That's a weird coincidence. Uh, and then the third one is psychology as a discipline is really good at telling you how to make changes. Right? I want to be more like this. I want to be less like that. We can help you with that. I mean, it's, it's, we're, we're really good at that. What, where we, we really hit a boundary condition is, well, what kind of person should I be? What does a good life look like? There's a lot that's been written, a little bit, I should say, on, we've been talking about insanity a lot, which is actually a forensic legal term and not a psychological term, that's a different discussion, but on insanity, but what is sanity? What is a good life? What is a healthy life? Is there one way to live? Are there multiple ways to live? And psychology can't really answer that question. We can kind of nibble around the edges a little bit, but what should I turn into? What kind of person will make me happier, better? Uh, psychology runs out of answers at that point, and really we have to rely on Gary, I guess, or, or you know, uh, philosophers, or people who work in ethics, or, uh, or we, we just run out of, we run into a boundary, and we can't answer that how should I live question in psychology. We can tell you how to get there once you decide, but we can't, that's not the kind of answer we can usually provide. So I'll leave it there for now. So I guess I get to be the oddball uh, in that I come from a field where we're actually pretty comfortable with a lot of our answers. Um, uh, so uh, I'll, I'll speak mostly Thanks from, from yeah. <laughs> uh, So in, I'll, I'll speak mostly from computer science, but I, I mean, there's uh, math ties into it a lot. Um, I guess the the places where some of the answers might break down is in a lot of math and computer science. The answers that you have are. You have to phrase the question really carefully, and you have certain assumptions, and as long as those assumptions are true, and as long as you phrased your question correctly, then yes, we have an answer for you. But if you get into a situation where some of your assumptions don't hold anymore, then the answer that you've been working from may or may not still apply. And so there's been plenty of areas where you know we, we picked some axioms, and, and those seem to work really well. Uh, until eventually we discover that, oh, wait a second, this one might not actually be true all the time. And so when you get into those situations, then you need to come up with answers that work for the assumptions that do apply to your situation. Um, also say that there's a lot of areas where we're really operating from the assumption that there are answers, again, if you phrase the question properly, um, and some of the answers we know and some of the answers we haven't figured out yet. Uh, but there's kind of that assumption that we can figure those answers out and we just haven't gotten there yet. Um, and so there's a couple of you know famous open questions and there's lots of prize money available for anyone who comes up with a, a proper answer to these questions. They're, so one of the big ones that gets a lot of attention, if you Google for P equals NP, 
you'll get a whole can of worms. Um, and it's this open question in computing. And if we, we think we know the answer is that they're not equal to each other, but we can't guarantee that yet. And if we're wrong about that, then that, that's going to cause a bunch of problems. Uh, but the assumption is either they are the same or they aren't, and there is a correct answer. One of those is the correct answer. We're just not sure which one is the correct answer yet. I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to avoid a half-hour lecture on what they mean. But yeah, so How so worried should we yeah. be about peanuts? <laughs> <laughs> Do I need to make a plane? Uh, if, if they turn out to be the same thing, there's going to be a lot of very upset people. Okay. Are upset? No. Or ice cream for everyone upset? <laughs> Uh, it, it, you're not going to die, but it's going okay. to, yeah, it, it, would, it would mess up a lot of the things that we've been assuming so far. Yeah. Um, one of the, the questions that, that I thought of coming out of this question of, of are there answers is um, why is it that we crave answers? And I, and, and I guess another piece of this that I'm thinking about is, uh, Stephen, you used the word certainty, and I'm also wondering, when we talk about answers, are we talking about certainty or are we talking about something else? <laughs> I mean, I think it's, uh, I was talking about this uh, over dinner with my wife because that's what happens when you marry a psychologist. Uh, and we were talking about um, around sort of uh, certainty and answers. And one of the things we know from, or we think we know from the research, it's pretty strongly suggestive, is that one of the best predictors of success for clinicians uh, is tolerance of ambiguity. Uh, because there's so much we don't know and won't know, uh, even, you know, I mean, you know, often people say, what's the best therapy? And it's like, well, who's the client? Who's the therapist? How old are they? What's the problem? What are the coping mechanisms do they have? What strengths do they have? What weaknesses do they have? And you can do your best and you make a good shot at it. But you also don't, there's lots of things you'll never know about your client. There's lots of things you'll never about, know about yourself as the clinician, right? As the clinician, you are the tool. I mean, you you are the instrument. And so any areas of blindness there are problematic. And so I think there uh, there is this desire for answers or assuredness. Oh, I found my fourth talking point just now. Man, I'll come back to it later. Um, uh, I could have one more than Gary. Uh, so... Going after that assuredness can be, in, in many ways, fear-reducing. And we know, as humans, fear is extraordinarily powerful. Uh, and, you know, uh, the, the TV show House of Cards has made hay with that idea. But it's pretty fundamental in, in politics and in psychology and a lot of areas where fear is a powerful motivator. And uncertainty is, can be scary and dangerous. And so we can latch onto things even if it's not not true. But it reduces the anxiety. So I think there's a huge anxiety kind of component to that, which can also become problematic. And maybe it's, I think, getting some of what Gary touched on as well around some of those those questions. I can't speak to certainty, but some of the work in cognitive science of religion uh, seems to show that as pan-human as we can get at the moment, says that we we come in the world wanting to know that there's a purpose. it's a teleology uh, purpose and purpose driven. I think I can't speak to why we want certainty, but I think there's a, some perhaps correlation that why am I here? And that sort of gets us. And it, it seems that we come into the world with that. So it seems to be very much a human uh, craving. 
why am I here? Is it, the, is it the job of the scholar to provide answers, to mm. problematize answers? I mean, what are, what are you guys doing? <laughs> Ask our students. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> grading. Mostly, mostly grading. <laughs> I I've said this in class lately. I, this whole answer thing. So I'm on this trajectory of high confidence of everything to know to feel like starting over on most things yeah. with new data coming in and constantly rebuilding. I, I say, I tell myself, I don't have answers. I feel I truly don't have answers. I have responses, maybe. But answers, that's something I used to have that I feel I no longer have. And answers are definitive. This is it. Now go forth. I don't feel I'm that person anymore. I have responses. They might be. So how do you break down how much of that is the um, is the result of your continued study, and how much of that is living life? A lot of it is study, and. Um, yeah. A big impact, uh, Jonathan, is it height or height? I don't even know how to pronounce it. Height. 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 Right Just Mind is his most accessible work, and yet students hear me blather on this in the classroom. But just his data and his decades of research, you can shut me down, is a complete and utter waste of, because he's a social psychologist, or a moral psychologist, nice. Uh, that just the impact of talks in terms of, it seems, Hume got it right. We make decisions with what our emotions are gut and strategic thinking comes second. And he moves, has a metaphor that we're basically driven by this elephant. Use the elephant because it's large and it's smart. And most of our thinking is that way. And the brain, our mind, sorry, there's a little rider on top that more or less is on a ride with these gut impulses. And I Implicit bias, what little I know of it. I'm you know, a Sunday school, glorified Sunday school teacher trying to look in on all these disciplines. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm left with, oh my, there's so much about our ration, our, our thinking processes that are deeply at the non-conscious level that have us do the things that we do, believe the things we do. And it's, it's life. But I think it's also this deliberate sort of engagement with what have been Blakeoff Johnson, Jonathan Haidt have been have changed me. Well, Demacio wrote a book. Yeah. One of the two Demacios. Yeah. I think the husband, the wife is Phineas Gage's friends. The husband. husband. Wrote a book called Descartes' Air yeah. that is very much along those lines, talking about that for a long time there was this kind of you no, know, we need to kind of celebrate reason and logic and emotion. We want to kind of remove from it. And really, the argument was no, no, no. We need we need that emotion to make good decisions. And when we separate these things, it becomes quite dangerous and, and almost it gets to kind of a silly level of, of thinking. Uh, and so we really need kind of both those things. And as my students know well, the answers to all psychology questions are either it depends or both. And you know, nature nurture both. Uh, I mean, it's it's, a, it's it's either it depends or both. And you know, I think getting at the question of kind of scholars uncertainty, or is that kind of what we do? And I think it's actually the opposite. I think the more the more classes the students take, and the more they learn. Certainly, in my own journey, the more I learn, 
the more it's an appreciation of all the nuance of why we don't know and can be less sure. And, and we teach intro to psychology, and it's here's all the things that we know about people, and then all the other sort of classes are accept this, accept that, we're not sure, accept that. And when you get to graduate school, it all just falls apart. And you've kind of got to you've got to build it back together. But students will often say, which of these is correct? You know, how do if these, this person wrote a really compelling article and this person wrote a compelling article? How do I decide? And it's like you have to wade through that. And I can give you skills on how to wade through the ambiguity and the unknown. But there isn't there is no answer at the end where I, we can say, oh, this this person's definitely right and and they get the gold star. It doesn't work that way, and that can be very frustrating. And so if it's if the question is, do we provide certainty or no? So well, how do students respond to that? Respond to the <laughs> uh, crying breakdowns. My mind is blown. My brain hurts after class today. That's like the last two weeks of class. So I mean, it is. It's 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 challenging. It's I think we hope right as we learn more, we're going to get more sure, and it's often the other direction, and uh, that. Can, that process can be scary and frustrating. It would be interesting to see but your classes as psych in that what the differences are between a psych prof and a Bible prof and how it's done. It's unblown as opposed to, oh no, you're wrong, prof, or this yeah. is mm-hmm. not what this is not good stuff I'm learning from you. This is really mm-hmm. affecting my faith. Mm-hmm. That investment in Bible theology slash the other disciplines. Right. Yeah. When you take a thing that so personally uh, motivates or affects us, and then turn it as a study as an academic discipline. It's maybe different than with mathematics or even a lot of psychology, but people aren't as maybe personally as invested, unless the n equals wow p n. <laughs> well, I think in math uh, we don't necessarily get the pushback of you know oh no why is there no certainty it's. Some of it's pushback of how can you say this is wrong? You know, that's just your opinion, man. It's, <laughs> I wrote a good proof. How can you say this isn't a valid proof? Like, no, I can say that. That's that's a bad proof. This is a good proof. You know, and yeah, maybe that's why that chased me away from philosophy. Is that I needed that needed the shelter of <laughs> having nice, clear cut answers to to my homework. Do you mean do you find people attracted to math for that very reason that that there is more of a fence of certainty around it, or do you, or do you find students trying to find those edges? Um, even within math and computer science, there's definitely going to be like there. There's some weird areas of math that I I pause <laughs> briefly. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Let's see if this field gets weirder. <laughs> their, their fields can probably top this, but yeah. So the uh, if you get into uh, I think I pronounced his name correctly, Girdles. Uh, pronounced Godel, but yeah, it's spelled Godel. But, uh, so uncertainty theorems, they're weird. And, and so basically, they're, they're basically, there's a variation on it uh, that shows up in computing, uh, the halting problem of could we ever create a program that would tell you whether every other program is capable of finishing? And so the halting problem is, well, if a program's running, is it running because it's stuck and it's going to run forever, or is it just not done yet? And it turns out that we can prove that there is no program that can successfully answer that question for every program. And that was, well, one, that's a, that's a weird thing to be able to prove, but it, and also the fact that we were able to prove that that's a certain statement 
that we can't answer this other question. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the, so there, there are weird edges of math that make us uncomfortable. But then we have the comfort of, oh, but we have a proof that that's, that the halting, yeah, that, that there is no such algorithm. And I think it's so. such an interesting idea to have a discipline <clears throat> where you can show that you, there's things you can't know. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't. <laughs> I would not find that reassuring in the least. You will never know how the brain affects our day-to-day -day life. Oh, okay, well, at least we know now. <laughs> That's terrifying. So you move on to the questions that you can't answer. Right, yeah, I suppose so. You just stop wasting time, I guess. You're, you know that you're not going to know it. Are there, I mean, are there things in your disciplines that maybe don't have that degree of certainty that we can't know, but that generally in terms of how you practice your scholarship that you just throw your hands up that way? Or? Trinity. Understanding that. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, all, so this is why I, I'm nuts and bolts. Archaeology, biblical studies, texts. I really I can't comprehend big stuff. I can't make sense of the Trinity. I take a lot of theology. I can't make sense of the Trinity, right? Uh, and I think, again, back to cognitive science religion, it's refining that we like minimally counterintuitive stuff, and that's why we came up, that's why humanity came up with gods and deities and sort of superhuman Marvel superheroes. We're human, we can see them agent. But when you come up with maximally counterintuitive, Religion needs a needs a structure that is say no. This is the correct way, and Trinity, in my mind, is one of the most maximally counterintuitive concepts out there. Uh, so I, I certainly don't know. I want to pivot uh, a little bit to the. I mean, the the big topic for this is uh, for the series is courage. So we've been talking about answers and certainty and things like that. Um, I guess I'll ask two questions and you can pick the one you want to talk about but does it take courage to have answers or it's like to hold on to answers I should say does it take courage to change your mind it takes courage to change the mind um, it can be changed but think all the cognitive dissonance is set up in confronting something that you know to be true or a thought to be true and then you keep butting up against perhaps evidence that suggests it isn't and that change it takes I mean the loss I think all of us in BTS have gone through crises of faith I mean, coming up with that all different ways to Chicago oh my yes what do I do um, and uh, uh because that change, I mean, I think I started as a 20-year-old, 25-year-old in Chicago. I'm 58 now. It's a life journey of uh, change. And change about the people you live with. They married someone that was very different than you are now. So the decisions of, of, on this journey where you're headed to, yeah, about what's going to you personally, but if you're in relationships, then what used to be the answers and the way you view the world together, um, you have to step along with them. And so Catherine and I have had this, this so far, this ride of 
moving very far from where we were when we first met. But that's a lot of a lot at stake there. So yes, for me, courage to to change is yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, our, our, my whole discipline is going through this massive up, upheaval right now around ideas of what we know and how we know it. And can we reproduce There's these findings that get talked about over and over and over that were developed in the 60s and 70s and people try to replicate them and they don't replicate. They try to replicate them and they don't replicate. And then we realize, oh, people kind of use these research methods that aren't great where they had 10 outcome variables and if one of them worked, they published that one and not the other nine. And that, then we find out about that later. And all of these things going on, these practices that have been kind of common practice. There's a, a famous book about how to publish in the field of psychology, and it's like, well, you could write the paper that you originally planned to write, or you could write the paper that you can write after you have the results, and you should write the second one, which is terrible advice. Terrible advice. You should not do that at all, because you're you're relying on a sample, and then you're there's all this air, and you don't know, and so people publish on this, and so now people are saying, okay, maybe we should change P-value for those who have taken steps. We should, that's what we should make P-value lower. That's where we should bear cutoff. We should get rid of P-values. We should do all these things because the problem with science is the people that do it. And you can't ever take the people out of the science. And so how do we develop methods and how do we hold on to ideas that used to be popular and now they don't replicate? And we can see people get very defensive about watching their life work disappear and that's easy to judge them, but then imagine working for 40 years on something and then it falls apart because of some new 27-year-old graduate student who just proved your whole life work. And we struggle with how do we make these changes, both in terms of the practices that we, that we operate on, but the things that we believe are true. And my whole discipline is just like tearing each other apart right now, which is what we love to do in psychology anyway about this topic and how do we make these changes and look back on these practices and realize, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that study in that way. Should I retract that paper? Uh, should everybody be retracting these papers? What do we do when there's a study that's out there and people have come along and said, oh, this, they probably got that effect because they manipulated their data or they, maybe it's a strong word, um, they tortured their data until it confessed. <laughs> And that what do we do with those studies? And what do we do when we're wrong? I had a paper that I worked on, um, some of my collaborators, we've got a line of research where we compare measures mostly of anxiety with, uh, with African-American, European-American college students. And we were running this advanced statistical technique and we got reviews back that were just pretty scathing. We had done the analyses wrong. Luckily I hadn't done stats on that project, but so it's easier for me to step back from it. But they just, they just tore us apart. And one of the people on the paper said, let's just send it to another journal. And it's like, no, we know it's wrong. We can't do that. And that's that's hard to not just kind of send those things out. And then what do you do when you realize that, oh, I've done this work before and it's not right. And so I think that's a, something our discipline's really struggling with, is all of these kind of practices that were accepted or kind of like, probably shouldn't do it that way, but eh, whatever. And now it's really hurting the field. And... As a, as a whole discipline, having to have that conversation, and it's not going very well. So I think in math and computer science, um, well, computer science especially, it's changing fast enough right now that I think we've all just had to become comfortable with being, you know, well, we made some assumptions and those assumptions aren't true anymore, so here's the newest assumptions, and so therefore here's the new answers. And that 
when it changes rapidly enough, you just you, you kind of got to roll with it because someone else is going to. Um, but if it's if it's a question of you were doing something and you made a mistake, that I think is where like if you have to admit not just I had some bad assumptions and those assumptions used to be true and now these other assumptions are true instead. Like if you made a logic error, that it's very easy to get defensive about that and you don't want to admit that it was your fault that you made this mistake and therefore everything else cascaded from there. But I don't know, we've we've also picked some really petty things to make a big deal. Mm. So I don't know the I know there's at least a few people in, in the room that have had to take discrete math and you had to do that whole thing on the four color theorem. So if you have, if, can you draw a map? How many colors do you need so that no two countries that are neighbors have the same color? And so like there's a famous theorem that four colors, you can't draw a map that needs more than four colors to avoid having neighbors that are the same color. And like this was a big, big deal that people were trying to prove that this was true. And there's like postage stamps, and that so that actually gets into one of the weird, fuzzy areas is that we have a proof now that four colors is enough, but no human understands it. It was done with computer assistance, and uh, as far as I know, no one has ever actually read through the complete output. But the computer program said, "Thumbs up, we're good. <laughs> four is enough." And so, like, we're we're pretty comfortable with the computer program, and but it, it turned out to be so weird that, you, as far as I know, there's no humans that claim to really understand the proof that that's true. So, but, are there answers if the computer says so? Yes, and so that 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 caused a huge controversy. Of okay, so it, are we comfortable with the fact that a computer told us it was good to go? But no human actually did, and eventually we decided, yeah, we're, we're we we just got to roll run with it because we don't have a choice. So we've talked about about sort of courage and scholarship and changing your mind, things like that. Does it require courage to be a good teacher? <laughs> You've met good teachers. <laughs> being a bad teacher are me assuming that, you know, I'm, I'm delivering solid gold to the audience <laughs> and they're, they're just not getting it. And that's on them, not on, you know, I, there's nothing wrong with how I, and it's just have, having to take a step back and say, no, the whole class didn't get this. And so the common factor is the person who's trying to teach them is I, I need to go back and rethink how I'm presenting this material. <clears throat> I, I, so I'd say it takes more humility than courage. I think one of the things that I, sorry, I think one of the things I mean, I'm pretty sure every semester before like when I pass out student evaluations, we talk about student evaluation and tell students. When I was a student, I didn't know if anybody read these, if anybody cared. And I can tell you, I read them all. I care. My boss reads them. He cares. His boss reads them. She cares. People care. People read them. And many of the things that I do in my class are changes based on student feedback. And I think one of the things that I 
was encouraged by a really good teacher that I knew was to listen to the students and to be willing to make changes. And that can be really hard and really scary to admit. The thing I did before, I didn't do it. I didn't do it well or I could have done it better. And so I think listening to that, that feedback and, and making changes and trying things out, which can be also just as frightening as trying something new and seeing how this go. So I think on that aspect, there's certainly elements that courage seems like a I was in the military, so courage and power teaching is kind of a hard, <laughs> kind of a hard phrase. But I think, I think getting at what you're really wanting to know is to what degree might that be related. And I think being open to feedback, being open and listening to it, because it's very easy in science and life and relationships to take feedback and say you're wrong or you don't know what you're talking about. Well, I think especially also in terms of thinking about, I mean, you guys were talking about part of your role as a scholar teacher is to maybe problematize answers that people have. And like that's, you know, you're, are, are you responsible for yeah. the, what comes of that then? You know? I, I mean, that's, so a good, if good teaching in my area, biblical studies, and that if good teaching is bringing the best of the discipline, the center weight of my discipline, uh, that is tough to hear for the general Bethel clientele from the churches like I grew up in, that you come from. So courage, it's difficult to sit there and, and read, take the data in, uh, and knowing, and then, okay, what will this do? How will it affect the spread, the spectrum of the students? On It's not a big deal to, this is a huge deal, I'm losing my faith. And the worry, the concern of what's involved in that, um, to confront you know, kind of where you come from. Uh, and then it all feels like Sisyphus. I'm all semester long. Uh, fresh class. And do this all again. Um, so there's, there is real, yeah, there's, the, I, I don't like the word courage, either, but we're getting at the stuff. It, but there is this, be a good teacher for me means I need to bring you the best data as we have it, and that means it will by generally be a very uncomfortable uh, in saying, but my Bible says this. Yes, I know our Bible says that, so uh, how do we want to understand our Bible? Now we're back to, is it free of error, or is it also very human, which means it isn't free of errors. Is it um, how science informed talk to those sorts of elements? I mean, I stand in a tradition that in 1633, as you all know, Galileo sat in front of the Inquisition, right? The lawyer slash theologian had it very simple. He simply could read the Bible. The world is, the earth is firm, it does not move. He could go over to Ecclesiastes, he says the sun travels, rises from the east and goes across the sky. And that's a case closed. Galileo espouses something that is clearly not in line with the plain teaching of Scripture. That is my discipline. I'm also a historian. I'm more of a historian than a theologian. I'm really not a theologian. I want to learn from that. I don't want to repeat that. I don't want to be that guy. So when you think about how your discipline talks to other disciplines, I mean, part of why we 
Um, why we wanted the three of you up here is because, you know, uh, as Xavier points out, you guys are not just scholars, you guys are also friends, right? Sort of, sort of. Okay, within, you know. Nathan and I more than, yeah. <laughs> I think it's understandable. Yeah. Um, how, does, how do you see your discipline, your scholarship, your work problematizing the answers of other disciplines? How do, you, how do they speak into each other? Well, I can say uh, when I wander over into the AC building, it's, it's usually to get advice about, you know, everything was nice and clear cut. And then all these stupid humans got involved, and they're not, you know, they. So anytime people get involved in computer science, things get really messy. And so then I wander down to my friends in in psychology or theology or history and say, so you know, here, how do I deal with this? And yeah, I'm I'm glad to have friends that I can draw on. What do you precisely mean by problematize? Uh, in, the, in the same way that, that, that as, a, um, as a teacher, you might uh, have students who, come, students who come to you with maybe answers or a sense of certainty in your job. Is, you see your job as to kind of pull that apart a little bit and have them examine it. To what degree does your discipline do that to other disciplines? At this phase of my life right now, I'm having all those other disciplines problem, problematize my discipline. Okay. <laughs> Psychology already, I and mean, that's a huge part. Right. Trying to understand how the mind is working, why we believe the things we do, etc. So, um, when it comes to math, because of my fine education at Central Bible College, the Central Bible College did not require any math of me. I have the equivalent of high school algebra two as the furthest I've gone in math. You're welcome. So I have, I, I maybe under, I, so I, yeah, this is so personally, I can't even be on the same page. Uh, so that particular discipline, Nathan's discipline, but psych, Biology, evolutionary biology, all the things that pertain to these hot bug uh, studies on towards sexuality, what makes us, and what brings about sexuality, and, and how much is there that we need to be paying attention to. All these questions that the people writing the Bible would not know in their humanity, and trying to address that. Psychology is long known as the queen of the sciences. Like, <laughs> <laughs> do I remember that from CWC correctly? <laughs> Pretty sure. I might have known. Uh, but I do think psychology, I mean, you're, you're seeing that, you know, I mean, they both just actually made the point for me that we can study math, we can study scientific topics, but we also have to recognize those things are being studied. Well, except for this new proof, this is terrifying me that. Maybe we'll just the program was written by a person, so we've got that point of view. For now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we also have those. <laughs> yeah, until, until the programs are writing the programs that provide the proofs that the humans can't understand, and the math department's just gone, and it's just computers teaching computer stuff, but we don't need any math majors anymore. <laughs> then we all get vacation. <laughs> <laughs> but once we, when we do introduce the human element, we, we can rely on a lot of psychology. And I, I think that's an important area, and I think we can be nurtured. I mean, as a psychologist, the most influential class I took 
as a student, sorry, Kathy, was philosophy of science. And it just completely changed the way that I thought about science as a discipline and how science operates and what science is and all the things outside of science that influence science and especially, that, of course, it relates to psychology. But we also, as a discipline, get to inform lots of other disciplines. It's just basic things like, well, you're dealing with people, and here's what we know about people. But also, if we can agree that humans wrote the Bible, that means there's psychological things and principles and ideas that affected them. And so then how do we start to tease apart or understand, or that we can parse out what's psychology, what we're seeing in the Bible that we read, and what's theology, and what's capital T truth, and what's humanness. And so it's, it's fun to be a psychologist and to, to interact at an institution like Bethel, where we're not in silos, cut off from each other, and we see each other, and we wrestle with the same for similar questions. Uh, and I think that's I think we benefit from that, and I think that's one of the things that when I was a student here, I definitely noticed. And when I taught at another institution, and I didn't, that I was like, wait, no, the faculty are supposed to get together and discuss these big ideas, and it didn't happen. And coming back to Bethel has been fantastic for that reason because those hallway conversations that I remember as a student are real and they still happen. And um, I, I think I think we all benefit from that. Yeah. Well, we, we handed out cards to folks. So if you have questions that you've written, if you want to pass them down to the edges, the, the TAs can pick those up. I'm going to ask a question while they're collecting cards. This maybe isn't a very good question, but um, I can't be Chris Garrett's friend for nothing, so I have to ask a kind of high question. questions. Um, we think about answers. Uh, you know, we, we tend to think about sort of things that we know in the mind. Um, are there other ways that we know answers? Um, using, you know, Pascal thinking about knowledge through the heart. Um, you can dismiss this question if you want, but but is, is that a, is that a, are there answers that we know in ways other than sort of rationally through the mind? I think one of the things I often will push people on, especially those who are the hardcore kind of science folks, is prove to me that your spouse loves you. I, like I, I want to see the scientific proof, or you know, that, that I don't look for that, right? And for those of you that that know my wife, which many folks that here do. Uh, and she's fantastic, and I think I'm talking about going on a journey and the changes you go through together. And when I when I see students getting married young, and I think, oh, the, the journey you'll take with your spouse, hopefully. And you know, I think that's just powerful. But I don't I don't look for data like that to know that my wife loves me. And I don't even think I want to be part of a relationship that did. And so I do think there are things that I don't. Uh, it's just a different kind of level of knowledge, or way, of, I guess, way of knowing that I rely on for those types of things. Then, uh, you know, I don't know that that's, that even would make sense to. That could be a good sitcom. I should write that. You know, a scientist lover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> Fair enough. I didn't say it was a good question. Uh, it was a placeholder while we collected questions from the audience, which I don't think we have any <laughs> as of right now. Um, we're getting close to eight o'clock, so we can we can start to sort of you know move towards uh, towards uh, closing here. Um, so we've talked a lot about um, these questions of answers, certainty, courage, all these types of things. Are there sort of closing thoughts that you have as you listened? to your, your colleagues? Or questions you have for your colleagues? I have a question for Gary. 
So I've been thinking about this. And actually, I, I think it's actually for both of you. Um, because it seems for me, and I don't know anything about math or computer science. Uh, I did take calculus twice. So <laughs> the second time went better than the first. Um, I will say that. But that's as far as I got, and that was a long time ago. Um, so it seems to me that, like, especially computer science, so many answers are still ahead of us. And the ways, the things that we're going to know are going to continue to change. And it seems for your discipline, so much of what is known is, especially the archaeology side, is, is past that you're studying. And as we've talked about many times between us, much of it is getting destroyed at, for political reasons or religious reasons or civil wars or whatever. And so you're losing information all the time. And so I'm curious how the future for your discipline or it seems so future-oriented, and yours seems in many ways past-oriented, especially the archaeology side, how that affects your ability to answer questions or think about answering questions. Yeah. It's probably true of all of, all of our disciplines, but biblical studies has so many sub-disciplines, and you're right, the archaeology side, um, um, with, that's you sound like ancient, uh, we deal with Syria and Iraq and Iran and that wars. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm a armchair archaeologist, so we'll see, because I don't really do archaeology each age and every year, etc. But I, you know, hearing bombs, of course, it's humanity, etc., but it's also there will never be anything more coming out to help understand the past and what people did. So on that side, at the same time, cognitive science of religion, for example, is very forward-looking and has this wonderful enterprise of what cognitive science is, these fabulous disciplines that is, you know, it's going right. It's nice to sit in a room because we're, we're ex hopefully we're somewhat experts in our small field, but, but it's nice to have not everybody showing anybody up in order to understand what the neuroscientists talk, and so it's wonderful collaboration. One thing that I find so exciting about the cognitive science and religion, that's very forward-looking to, to get at, and with the help of good surveys and testing to see what it is, what is, how are we wired, how is religion, and these concepts, and how that is human. So it's very forward. Um, so I guess it's... It, Janice, if I'm this way or this way, uh, I'm seeing two different things. All right, well, we have some questions. Oh, so, well, all right. there, there. so, yes. What is the point in searching for answers if they only raise more questions? <laughs> How do you motivate yourself knowing this? I, that drives me. I don't know how to respond to it, but it's it's the not knowing, and it's the journey. I mean, that's so cliche, isn't it? That's terribly cliche, but it is. It is the journey, the inquiry. I mean, why would I go to four years of college and three years of grad school, then eight and a half years of more grad school if I wasn't interested in getting the tools to? I wasn't very bright. <laughs> You're right. It's scoffing out. Yes, I was not very bright. Yeah, you in Chicago when I was there, you managed to take 11 people to get through the programs. I blistered through 11 and a half, 11.2 years. Yeah. 
Anyway, so what am I saying? I'm saying, um, hmm, what am I saying on this track? You uh, like it. You like I, the pursuit. So the pursuit of that. So it's the journey. It's the, it's the journey. It's not getting there. No, it's the journey. It's the, it's the journey. And the unknown. The unknown is, is absolutely exciting. So that, that actually, well, okay. Oh, yeah. You're on the right track. No, no. I would also say, um, if, if you find out something new and that raises a bunch of stuff that you realize you don't know, you already didn't know those things. But at least now you know one extra thing. That you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, I like that, Nathan. I think we're done here. <laughs> so is there any comfort in knowing that some things can't be known? Comfort? Well, it does help because at least you know to stop trying. <laughs> <laughs> and you can spend your time elsewhere. For me, there is comfort in not knowing because I'm, I'm going to try and understand. But uh, uh, yeah. Um, Maybe too much information. Um, the old Gary uh, grew up in an environment where God was going. I, I was scared to. The, I always looked for my mom and dad to know where they were because I was afraid if I didn't see them, the, I, the rapture occurred and I'd be going to hell. So I was. I was the God. The, my, the old Gary was this person. God re just ready to see me fail. And. The uncertainty and not knowing is that I guess I, by, by reason I've had to embrace the loving, the, the change of face of this God who is out to get me to one who loves and is patient. And so I, I guess because I don't have answers, I don't have, I have response, I don't have answers, I feel this God, and particularly as expressed in Jesus while he's on earth, this caring individual who's not looking to nail me but embrace wherever I'm at and so I've come to a place of comfort uh, that if I don't know if I got it wrong God's grace please because I'm trying my best here and I know this Bible you've given us and I have more questions about it and less certainty than ever because the more I know the more so that kind of, that conversation goes on. I'm comfort I'm more comfort at it than I would have been the young Gary. Alright. Last question. Last card question. How does religion affect psychopathology? Nathan, this is for you. <laughs> <laughs> How does religion affect psychopathology? Depends. <laughs> <laughs> and both. Okay, both. <laughs> we learned something. <laughs> we learned something. <laughs> um, it depends on what you mean by religion, and it depends what you mean by effect. Oh my gosh, it's just like one question on a card. Well, it, I mean, it does depend. I mean, if you mean by religion, do demons cause psychopathology? I mean, we see now in the latest version of the diagnostic manual that the sense of being possessed can be diagnosed as a dissociative condition, right? We read the Bible and we see this possession as it's a spiritual thing. And so 
how do we understand it and in what era? And so that's what I'm saying. It depends what you mean by psychopathology. It depends what you mean by religion. Do you mean religious practices? Do you mean if I pray more? I'm not gonna, my depression I had when I was in college is never going to come back. I don't know about that. I don't, I don't know about that. I think I've done a lot of research on religion and religious practices, and the answer seems to be both. There can be aspects of religion. I'm not kidding. There's aspects of religion that are protective, and there's aspects of religion that can be really damaging. And I think Gary's kind of talked about that through personal narrative, that same idea, uh, and and how do we embrace that? And so, I, you know, so I'm saying it depends on both, and I, and it's trite, but it's also there is this grayness, this unknown that we just have to embrace and be okay with, and not we're not sure about. And so I don't I don't take comfort in, I'm just kind of back, I don't take comfort in them not knowing, but I guess I have become more comfortable with it, and recognizing the, the more I study, the more questions I have, and I think I have better questions, and I think those questions can help people, including my clients, and they can help me think about my faith more clearly. Um, so I think getting at that idea of not knowing, uh, I'm okay with, because I think it spurs more interesting and deep thoughts, and I think one of the things I encourage students to do is, is, you know, don't treat certain faculty as like, we don't have this like secret fund of knowledge that we're like hiding from you. And if you go to school long enough, you get a key or something. That's not the way that it works. And what you've got is a group of people who are willing to take these questions seriously and really engage with them. Sometimes they might have an answer that we're okay with and sometimes they might not. Okay, last question. So you've spoken a little bit about um, what you know of each other's disciplines or this notion of hallway conversations um, that occur between disciplines. Just even as you listen to each other, what is fascinating or intriguing to you about what each other has said from different perspectives? joke about not having a strong math background. Um, I took one psychology class as an undergrad. I took the required theology courses. But I, yeah, that, I, that, that basically primed me to be able to, to be able to have good conversations in small groups and Bible studies, but that did not prepare me to be a theologian. And I, I still feel very inadequate in my ability to, to wrestle with theological issues. But like I said, it, it, I appreciate that it, it gave me a tool set to be able to have those conversations. Besides, you were in the honors program. I was in the honors program. <laughs> So my wife works in PR, and the number one rule when you're being interviewed is, is answer the question you want to answer, not the one that was asked. So I'm going to do that. <laughs> and it's relevant, I think. And that is, I think, one of the things we've heard from us is don't think about disciplines as separate. Don't think about majors as separate. All of these things influence. There's, there's only one world, I think multiple universities, now I'm in trouble, but um, <laughs> oh, 
for all intents and purposes. And so, you know, we divide these disciplines for various, I think, historical reasons and maybe just even pragmatic reasons because we can't be hyper-specialists in everything. But embrace interdisciplinary things. I think what's devastating to me is when students come and I teach an online stats class or in our CAPS program, and people say, I'm not a math person. It's like, well, can you find a square root? That's the most difficult math we do. And they shut themselves out of doing, using statistics because I'm not a math person. Or for a long time, I thought I'm not an art person. So I just, everything creative I stayed away from because I'm not an art person. And at the age of 35, I realized that's not true and I wasted, you know, 30 years of my life staying away from everything art. So don't, don't do that. That's my encouragement, is to, to really embrace it, whatever your major is or your interests are, look and see that you know, look and just look at the field right next door and at least give that a try. And I think you'll quickly find that the other disciplines can really inform and the things you know can also inform those other areas. I guess that one of the most fun interdisciplinary um, useless things that we've done is I was wandering down the hall one day and Stephen asked me to help him figure out whether a pair of dice that he had were fair or not. Yeah, you made those. I made those. Yeah, he made, he made. Because, because you, you become more creative. Because I become more creative. And so then I had to apply the math. And so we used a chi-square test, and we found out if the diagonals were fair or not. And they were uh, not statistically significant unfair. But then we ended up in the physics department. Yeah. Which so had we got, point, we got calipers and do some measurements. And, it, you know, it, and this was like a random Wednesday or something. This was not planned. It was just a, you know, hey, how do we do this? And then... Who else can we talk to about this? And this led to a whole thing. That it, was, it was fun because even though the initially the statistics said that that they were probably fair, like we have this theory that no, we think it's longer in this one dimension. And Chad Hoyt happened to have a, a set, set of calipers that were sensitive enough, and sure enough, yeah. we test that hypothesis and realize it's oh yeah. yeah, I guess if one side is longer, that's going to throw off how a die rolls. And I mean, this was just a random funny thing. That, that started yeah, it, it was either that or great papers. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll echo what's happening here and what Steve said, and maybe try to wrap it in the bundle of liberal arts. This is the fascination. What I mean, I love hanging out with these folks. I don't understand most of anything he says this way, but Nathan brings a view and questions that I would never think of because of where we is. Same with that. And Steve and what he brings and the people I hang out with, it really is, I don't it really is a celebration of what I hope you will take advantage of, the liberal arts, to not think just your discipline, but to side by side working together. It's, I mean, again, I went to Central Bible College, it was not a liberal arts college, and because of that experience, I am wholly given to liberal arts education because of this kind of cross-fertilization and just questions and hearing from different disciplines. As honor students at that, and I, mean, I hope you lead the foray into just celebrating what liberal arts is and the wealth of the disciplines that sit here. They can inform you and have you thinking differently having you ask questions that you would never have because you're not just in a single discipline, just hanging out within the discipline, but you're actively seeking out the world of knowledge by those disciplines. Oh, well, thank you very much for... Um, yeah.
because our refreshments came late, they're at the back of the room. Please make use of them. Um, and we'll uh, we'll be letting you know about uh, the the what is it called? Courage and Journal or Courage, Courage and Rights Courage and Prince uh, forum coming up in November. 